Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello. The race is heating up to connect the planet to the Internet. The new regime is between 1,000 and 500 kilometers away from Earth, costing somewhere in the region of between 500,000 and a million dollars to make one and weighing 150 kilos. We speak to the psychologist and geneticist Robert Plowman about his recent work. The heritability of these traits is not due to one, ten, or a hundred DNA differences. It's due to thousands of tiny differences. And is there life left for the humble fax machine? Technologies come and go, but the users come and they go and they don't come back. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. But first, the race to connect the planet is well underway, and especially to connect the estimated 3.5 billion people who are unconnected to the Internet. Bringing Internet access to places where it is scarce or non-existent could be a huge business, and companies are beginning to build and launch the satellites that will be used to bring connectivity. To discuss this, I'm joined by Hal Hudson, the Economist technology correspondent. Hello, Hal. Hello, Ken. Hal, why is there this huge cornucopia of business activity around satellite technology? So we're kind of in the boom phases, and it's important to note that no operational satellites in the sort of next-gen constellations have actually been launched yet. But the reason is that... Well, there's a few reasons. One of them is that a guy called Greg Weiler has always had as his life mission this goal to connect the unconnected. He started a satellite company called O3B, which stands for Other 3 Billion. That still exists, but it hasn't quite done what he wanted to. So now he's got a new one called OneWeb. And so it can't just be this one guy. It's got to be lots of things. It's lots of other people too, yes. And there's a few sort of economics factors that go into this. I mean, we're the economists. We love that kind of thing. The cost of electronics has come down massively. Give me a sense of the scale of the price decline. It's hard to know exactly because they're quite cagey about their numbers. But a typical communication satellite that sits in a geostationary orbit, which means 36,000 kilometers away, it's very big, it's very heavy, it's very expensive, costs in the order of tens or hundreds of million dollars to make a single one and it costs a ton or, or it weighs a ton or more. That's the old regime. The new regime is uh, between 1,000 and 500 kilometers away from Earth, costing somewhere in the region of between 500,000 and a million dollars to make one and weighing 150 kilos. So to be connected all the time, how many satellites does one need in orbit? Well, it depends on how you arrange them, but you definitely need more than 100. But then if you look at what SpaceX is doing, they have got permission to put somewhere in the region of 12,500 satellites in orbit. So it really depends on how you arrange the spheres of satellites up there. The sort of two big players are OneWeb, which has permission and is planned 
planning to launch about 900 satellites. And SpaceX, which is at first going to launch, I think it's 4,275 satellites, and then it has permission to do 7,000 or so more later. Is this a duopoly or is there a, a larger stream of companies following in the wake? No, there's a larger stream of companies. One very interesting one is called Telesat. It's a Canadian satellite communications company. They've done satellite internet for a long time out at geosynchronous orbits. And they now see the opportunity to bring satellites much, much closer. And their reasons are the same as everybody else's reasons. But unlike OneWeb and SpaceX, they don't want to serve all consumers. They've actually done some very clever modeling, which allows them to pick the best regions of the Earth, the ones that will be most financially viable for them, to focus their satellite coverage on. They're going to have, uh, I think they're, at first they're going to have 200 satellites, and then with plans to expand that to 512 satellites. Isn't there a problem with all the space clutter that's going to be up in the atmosphere when we have more space flight happening? Well, as Douglas Adams said, space is big, really, really, really big. You won't believe just quite how big it is. But the problem is not exactly that it's crowded. The problem is that the risk of collisions goes up when you put more things up there that are whizzing around at 25,000 kilometers an hour. If that hits anything or any bit of it comes off and hits anything, that's going to be pretty catastrophic. And the big worry, the big sort of the top ticket worry is this thing called Kessler syndrome that was described by a dude from NASA in the 70s. And what that is essentially is a chain reaction that starts with one collision and builds and builds and eventually wipes out an entire orbital plane. And the problem is that because all this stuff is in orbit, if you if you then like destroy everything and crunch it up into little bits and it's just flying around, how do you get it back down again? You've basically lost access to that orbital plane. And so this is a big risk because it means that you could sort of for decades pollute an entire orbit of Earth. Okay, if this is a new space race, but it's on the commercial sphere, who's going to win? OneWeb and SpaceX are taking the biggest risks. They're doing things that when you talk to sort of old sea dogs of the satellite industry, they, they shake their head and say, I don't see how that can possibly work. It can never work. And in many ways, their analysis is pretty spot on. Like OneWeb's satellite constellation doesn't do anything clever in terms of focusing where its coverage is. They're just in straight orbit. But they're betting that they can make satellites for so cheap when they scale this thing up that all the optimization in the world and all the use of fancy focusing antennas up in space will count for nothing when you can make, launch, and run a huge constellation of satellites at really, really low costs. But we don't know yet what those costs are. It's kind of the big thing. Everybody's waiting to find out whether their costs will weigh them down or whether they will be able to reach escape velocity, as it were. Hal, I've got a sense of deja vu. Hasn't this been tried before? It has been tried before, and it failed rather dramatically. Iridium. The Iridium and Global Star, and most importantly, the poster child, Teledesic, which was backed by Bill Gates and went bankrupt horribly during the dot-com boom. It depends who you talk to. Some people say, the, you know, this is proof positive that these guys are idiots and it's all going to fall out of the sky. Some people say that what that actually did was clear out the sort of regulatory scene for, the, yep. for these new players to operate in so that they didn't, don't have the uncertainty of whether or not they can be licensed in space, operate in space, get spectrum in space. All of that stuff is kind of standard, de rigueur, taken care of. And so the hope of people who see this as a, as a more likely second-time lucky type thing is that the hard work of dealing with regulations and figuring out how do we even do this has already been done. And, and now they've just got to find a business model. Hal, this is great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ken. Next up, we speak to Robert Plowman, a professor of behavioral genetics at King's College London. Robert came into the Babbage studio to discuss with Jeffrey Carr, the economist science editor, about his latest book, Blueprint, 
how DNA makes us who we are. Jeff started by asking him to sum up his career and what he had discovered. Back when I started in graduate school in the 1970s, genetics was never even mentioned in psychology. It was actually dangerous professionally and sometimes personally to even mention genetics. So major mental illness like schizophrenia, we were really taught that this is caused by what your mother does to you in the first few years of life. It was all environmental. So it's been a long road, you know, over the 45 years, and I think things have changed tremendously so that one of the reasons I wrote the book now is that I think we're at a tipping point. People don't have a knee-jerk reaction against genetics now the way they used to back then. I mean, I haven't been called a Nazi for 30 years probably. So things have changed, and what's really changed now is the DNA revolution, which is allowing us to predict from DNA alone at birth psychological problems and promise. So that's going to change everything, I think. Mm-hmm. So you started off uh, looking at adoption studies, I think, and mm-hmm. went on to twin studies. Mm-hmm. And then this genetic revolution came along, which uh, is genome-wide association That's studies. Correct, yeah. could, could you explain how that works for our yeah. listeners? Well, I've been looking for genes related to learning ability for 20 years, and the technology just wasn't there. So for about the first 10 years or so, we did what was called candidate gene studies. So pick some genes that seem to make sense in terms of the brain like neurotransmitters, for example. The problem is that we didn't get any results from that. And we now know why. And that's because we're not talking, the heritability of these traits is not due to one, 10, or 100 DNA differences. It's due to thousands of tiny differences. And so that's been the big realization in the last five years. To pick up small effects like that, you need studies not of the sort we did with 300 people or 3,000 or 30,000. You need hundreds of thousands of people to have the statistical power to scoop up these very tiny effects. And then what do we do with them? We can put them together in what we call a polygenic score. And that's what's uh, transforming the behavioral sciences, that you can predict from DNA alone at birth these psychological traits, personality, cognitive abilities, mental health, and illness. You use the word heritability in that yes. explanation, and, uh, and I think it's a concept that's poorly understood. Absolutely. Um, certainly, I sometimes struggle with it. Could you explain what exactly it is you mean by heritability and how it can be mutable during a person's lifetime? Yes. It's a descriptive statistic, like a mean, an average of a population, or a correlation. It's, it's the differences between people in a particular population. And it's so important to emphasize we're talking about why people differ, not why we're all human. And that's an important distinction. Only 1% of our DNA differs. We're asking, does that 1% make us different? That's what we're talking about with heritability, the extent to which differences we observe in behavior can be explained by DNA differences. So it's, it's, heritability is descriptive in the sense it's limited to the population you're describing. You could get different results in a different population. Like people are surprised to find body mass index. Both you and I have a little bit of a problem there. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very substantially heritable. It's about 70% heritable. That means of the differences between people in this population, given their diets, their lifestyles, their genetics, 70% of the differences can be explained by DNA differences. Having established at least 
with reasonable certainty that your hypotheses are correct. What can we do with that information? What can we do with the knowledge that educability is is heritable and that and polygenic, and that uh, certain illnesses are heritable and, and polygenic? And you talk uh, in the, in the book about positive genomics. I think was the term you used, so mm-hmm. that, that you could look at look at somebody when they're a child, an infant, a neonate almost, and if you sequence their DNA and and looked for the the 1% differences, you might be able to predict certain things about their future life, which would allow you to intervene in advance. Yeah. Well, that's the key question. That's what people are worried about. And there's a lot of doom mongers saying if we're able to predict from DNA, you know, the sky's going to fall. And there are concerns, you know, ethical concerns, um, insurance concerns. Mm -hmm. But I'm a cheerleader for it because I think a lot of good can happen. For Mm -hmm. example, if you knew that you were at high genetic risk for alcoholism. The neat thing about polygenic scores is up to now, we could only tell you you have a family risk. If you had a father who was alcoholic, mm-hmm. you'd have a five-fold greater risk. But with DNA, I can say you have a 15-fold greater risk. Your brother has no risk because siblings in a family are 50% different genetically. And then if I could tell you, or better yet, if the NHS could tell you, look, you're at very high genetic risk for alcoholism. You will not become alcoholic if you don't drink a lot of alcohol. But if you drink as much as your friends, you're at much greater risk for becoming alcoholic than them. Mm. I think the way, that's the way this is going to work. DNA is the best predictor we have, and you need prediction to be able mm. to prevent disorders. And all of medicine is moving towards prevention because we're not very good at curing things. Alcoholism, it's, it, we're not very good at curing it. Obesity, schizophrenia. But by preventing things... It's got to be more cost-effective in terms of money, but also in terms of society and personally. If you're taking that information in a medical context and say, we'll do something with this, we'll, we'll change that individual's environment, we'll give them certain advice, maybe give them certain medical treatments if it's appropriate, in order to have a better outcome for the individual. It's surprising to me that that's not also happening in education. What we've learned is you need really big studies to pick up these small effects. And with educability, really years of schooling, uh, in 2013 in science, there's a paper that explained 3% of the variance. Uh, Two years later, there were 250,000 people in a study that explained 4 or 5% of the variance. And just a couple months ago, there was a paper published with 1.1 million people, and it's explaining close to 10% or 11% of the differences between people in years of education. We use that information to create a polygenic score in our sample and relate it to GCSE scores. And we're explaining more variance in measured educational achievement, GCSE scores, 15, 16% of the differences between children. And do you know Ofsted ratings of schools, you know, the school quality ratings, these outside inspectors that come in for two days, how much variance on that measure, can they explain in GCSE scores? Two mm. percent. So, know. How, mu- how much do you think it, w- it would be possible to to use genetic information to tailor uh, individual curricula for people? Well, we need studies. Not so far as just general educability. Mm. What we need are studies of math. You know, exactly. specific yes. abilities, yes. Yeah. and I think that will take us farther towards individualized uh, learning, personalized learning. Professor Plowman, thank you very much. Thank Pleasure. You. Thank you. Regular listeners to the Babbage Podcast know that every now and then we give away one book to one lucky listener if you answer a question. For the holiday season, however, we're doing something special. We're giving away three books to the single listener, and the books are AIQ by Nick Polson and James Scott, Lab Rats by Dan Lyons, and 
Click Here to Kill Everybody, It's About Security, by Bruce Schneier. And the question is, what was the top tech development in 2018? And what will be the top tech development in 2019? Give us your answers. Email it to us at radio at economist.com, and you might be the lucky listener. And finally, the British government has just announced that the National Health Service will be banned from buying fax machines from next month and has been ordered to phase out the machines entirely by 2020. This comes after the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, Matt Hancock, had this to say on our podcast, The Economist Asks. I am now the proud, less than proud, owner of the world's largest collection of fax machines. And it's unbelievable that the NHS still uses fax machines. So to discuss the future of the fax machine, I'm joined by the technology historian Jonathan Coopersmith. Professor Coopersmith teaches at Texas A&M, and he's also the author of Faxed, A History of the Fax Machine. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you, Ken. So faxes seem like some sort of relic from the Middle Ages, but they're still used. They are still used, particularly in the fields of medicine, real estate, anywhere where you need a legal signature and people don't trust electronic signatures. This still is mind-boggling to me. Why would people not migrate onto new technologies like the Internet? Because for a lot of people, faxing is easier. You don't have to learn to use a computer. And nobody is ordering you to use a computer. But all of these same people have a computer. It's in their phone. Exactly. But it's not called a computer. And if you don't know how to type or if you're comfortable with what you're using, why change? Okay, so let's look at that, the why change question. What you're saying is it's cultural. It's not really legal. They could change the law. And it's not technical. Technology is better on a computer. But... Uh, say, Japan, you still have an older generation in particular that never learned how to type. Their script, they write by hand. You can do that easily with, with the facts. And if you don't trust the security of your email system, you can fax. Or if you have an incompatible email system. Now, I can appreciate that in Japan, in which you have this blending of old and new, that the fax machine can still exist. In fact, many of the Fax machines are made by Japanese companies, and I'm reminded that we met when we were both living in Japan as a journalist and as a researcher. But Germany and America? Germany, there's no law on accepting legal signatures. So there, there was a recent survey by Bitcom, a German uh, digital firm, found that 70% of German businesses still use fax machines. You still get, oh, at Bear. That big agro-firm sends 30,000 weather faxes a day out to German farmers. What does this tell us about the future of technology and the persistence of old technology to linger around? That as long as people don't have to be forced into new technologies, and if you look at farmers, you know, they're isolated, they're not usually part of a big business, they're their own bosses. If they're comfortable with that technology, if there's no incentive pushing them, to use that new technology, they may not, as long as the old technology can still be supplied. I would think that there'd be some sort of stigma to it, that by knowing that you're still using a fax machine, it doesn't seem like you're modern. 
often there is a stigma, but the people saying shame, shame are not the people who actually have a good reason for using a fax machine. One of the thing, basic rule for looking at any technology, why is it still being used? Look at the competition. What are the alternatives? And if they are, they cost more, if they're harder to work, and you have a choice, you may choose the older, obsolete, or stigmatized technology. Jonathan, technologies come and go. Will we always have fax machines? No, because technologies come and go, but the users come and they go and they don't come back. 30 years from now, probably no technologies except in science museums. Now humor me for a moment. If I'm so surprised that the fax machine is still around, what other technologies are still operating that I'd be surprised to know still exists? The U.S. Navy a couple years ago started training its naval cadets again in how to use a sextant because they realized that, okay, they, they'd cut out teaching people how to use sextant because their time is better spent learning other things. But then somebody said, what happens if there's a war and we'll lose our, our GPS? You know, maybe we should have this um, backup. Indeed, militaries are where you often see some of these obsolete or obsolescent technologies being kept around just in case you need them. And by the way, if the internet goes down, you can still fax somebody. That's good to know. As you may know, in Russia, they've recently put through many orders for typewriters. They can't be tapped, can they? Jonathan, always great to chat with you. Thank you very much. A pleasure, Ken. Take care. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. Don't forget, if you want to read any of our stories, please go to economist.com. And if you like our journalism, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. And don't forget, rate us on your favorite podcast provider. It matters, and it means a lot. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. 